As your pastor, I, I pray that you, the people of God, always understand these two truths. Truth number one, it is the gospel and the gospel alone that can change hearts and lives and eternities. Nothing else. The gospel, the good news of what Jesus did for you, is the only thing that can take someone who is dead, born into this world dead, and make them alive. The gospel, the good news about what Jesus has done for you, is the only thing that can take someone who is condemned and destined for hell and make them a citizen of heaven and an heir to eternal life. The gospel is the only thing that can not only change your hearts and your eternities, but also change your day-to-day life is the only thing that actually makes you see life better and in a new light. It is only the gospel, Christ dwelling in you, that can change the way you act and think and interact with others. Take take Matthew chapter 5, for example, from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, where he calls each one of you in whom he dwells the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And then he says to each one of you, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Only way that that's possible is Christ dwelling in you. The only thing that gives you the ability to do those things, it's the gospel. Truth number one. Truth number two, just as important. Without the law, without the holy law of God, the gospel is meaningless. Absolutely and utterly meaningless. Without the law that tells us that we are sinners, the gospel is not. The gospel transforms from good news for you to just some good advice that maybe you should follow on a day-to-day basis. Without the law that condemns you as a sinner, the gospel is nothing more than empty platitudes, worth pretty much nothing. Both are equally necessary in the life of the Christian. Both are equally necessary, no matter how much we want to run from the second one, right? Because our sinful nature runs kicking and screaming from the law that tells us you are a sinner. They are both equally necessary for us both in the life of the Christian and in our life of worship here this morning. Right? Because that's how we started worship today, right? After that opening stanza of the hymn, we confess these words together. Holy God, gracious Father, I am sinful by nature and have sinned against you in my thoughts, words, and actions. I have not loved you with my whole heart. I have not loved others as I should. I deserve your punishment both now and forever. Do you realize how radical of a notion it is that you and I would gather together on a Sunday morning and corporately and individually speak those words? Do you have any idea how radical of an idea it is to a broken and fallen world that we would speak these words? Right, because in these words, what are we admitting? We're admitting that we're sinners. We are admitting that we are a people who are bad who by nature cannot do anything on our own that, would, that God would deem good. We are admitting that God is holy and just. We are admitting that God is right in holding us accountable for our sins and in actually enacting punishment both in time and in eternity. Do you know why this whole notion of confessing our sins is so radical to the world and sometimes even radical to our own hearts? Because of the ideas that it presents. Because nobody likes to be told that they are a sinner. And nobody likes the idea, the idea of a God who actually would punish somebody. 
Nobody likes the idea of a God who is holy and just and will hold people accountable for their sins. And so people run from this radical notion of a confession of sins and they create their own idea of who people are. Since nobody wants to be told that they are sinners, people run from that notion and they create an idea that people are generally just pretty good. Right? How many of you have heard that before? People are generally pretty good. Yeah, I see almost everyone's head nodding. Yep, sure, people make mistakes. People screw up in life, but they shouldn't be held accountable for those mistakes at all. In fact, they're just generally decent. They're happy with that idea. They're unhappy with the reality that the proclamation of the law presents to us. That we are sinners and that God is just in trying to punish us. That brings us to the second notion that people are largely unhappy with. That God would actually hold somebody accountable for their sins. And because people run from that radical notion of a God who would actually punish somebody, they create an own, their own God for themselves, a God who is all loving. Which, by the way, if any of you are paying attention, an all loving God is found all throughout the pages of Scripture. That is who our God is. But people interpret that to mean something very different. Because to most of the world, an all loving God is someone who is tolerant and someone who is accepting. An all-loving God would never actually punish somebody, but he would tolerate our sins, he would accept our weaknesses, and in that tolerance and that acceptance, the all-loving God would help us to move forward, to move past the mistakes that we make in this life, and enable us to improve step by step by step, making us better and better all along. People are happy with a notion like that because it's palatable to our sinful nature who runs from absolutely anything that would say otherwise. But they're unhappy with the reality of what an all-loving God actually is. And they're unhappy with the actions that an all-loving God would take in love for us. This morning, as we celebrate the baptism of our Lord, we have a chance to not only see these two pillars of truth that are so formative and important for our daily lives, the law and the gospel, we also get to see how God's love puts forth both law and gospel in the baptism of our Lord. And Mark shows us this by transporting us to a world that is just radically different. Radically different from what most people want. Because in this world that the gospel writer Mark transports us to, it's a world where people aren't saying that they're de like pretty decent people. Instead, they're doing what? They're confessing their sins. Mark trans transports us to a radically different world where God is not accepting people, but he's forgiving them. When you read through the opening chapter of both Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel, you will find genealogies is what starts their gospels. They're creating this historical record that traces Jesus' lineage from their, his parents all the way back to their first ancestor, Adam. But Mark starts his gospel differently. He starts his gospel with a prophecy that we actually looked at during Advent. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And then suddenly, and surprisingly, as if Mark has nothing else to say, all of a sudden, John the baptizer appears on the scene. And what is he doing? But even if you've never read the Gospel of Mark, maybe the title that John has given clues you into what he's doing, John the baptizer. John is out in the desert preaching and carrying out a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He is telling people to repent, in other words, to turn away from your sin and turn to Jesus. This is a radical thing, isn't it? And it's not just that it's a radical notion that most of our world would disagree with and our own sinful nature kicks against turning away from our sin, but people were actually coming to him. And not just a few people, 
But we're told that all the Judean countryside and all of Jerusalem came to John doing what? Not to gawk at the man wearing camel hair clothing, not to have their jaws hit the floor in horrified shock at what, what John was preaching, but to do the very thing that you and I were doing this morning when we started this service. They were there confessing their sins. As they confessed their sins, John brought them down into the water and baptized them for the forgiveness of sins. And then Jesus shows up. And then that question takes on real, a real-life form. What will an all-loving God do when confronted with a situation like this, a situation that we find in Mark chapter 1? Because you have radical things going on. You have, a, you have radical words being spoken, people confessing their sins. You have a radical action being taken, being baptized for the forgiveness of sins. You have John preaching this radical notion about God that the world just simply dis- disagrees with that God will actually hold people accountable for their sins and actually punish them. Now, people would expect, well, they create an expectation for what they would want Jesus to do in that situation. They would want Jesus to stand on the banks of the Jordan and to tell John that he's got it all wrong, that people aren't actually sinful, that they're relatively pretty decent people, and they have no need to be in that water. They'd expect him to stand there on the banks of that Jordan River and to use his microphone and say, come on up out of that water, and I'll show you what an all-loving God looks like. It's a God who accepts and who is tolerant and who never punishes. Come follow me, and I will show you how to create a happier and more tolerant world and society. And it's not just the world who has these expectations either. If you search your own heart, sometimes we wish Jesus would say that same exact thing to John. Because every time that we are caught in a sin and that guilt weighs down on us, Satan tries to convince us that that sin is not that big of a deal. That God will not, in fact, punish you, but he will just be okay with it. Because Satan tries to convince us that an all-loving God is tolerant and acceptant of absolutely every, everyone and everything and every action that we ever carry out. And this concept of an all-loving God is palatable to us, especially when we catch someone that we love in a sin. Because if an all-loving God means that he is tolerant and acceptant of absolutely everybody and everything that they carry out, well, that means that we don't have to confront our brother or sister or family member or wife or friend who is caught in this sin. It gives us a complete out. So it's not just the world that that expects that, it's us who expects it too. But Jesus never really does what we would expect him to do, does he? Because what does he do when he walks in or when he stands on the bank of the Jordan River? He doesn't shut down this radical rhetoric of John the Baptist. He keeps letting people get into the Jordan River. He keeps allowing people to confess their sins. And then he does something completely surprising. He gets in the water with them. And do you know why? Because that is God's love in action. Jesus waded into the the waters of the, the, the Jordan River to identify himself with sinners. Jesus waded into the waters of the Jordan River because he knew that sinful human beings could not stand up under the wrath of God that sin brings on their own. Jesus waded into the waters of the Jordan River because he knew he would be the only one who could bear the punishment that our sins bring, which is death. He knew that he would be the only one who would be able to rise and to bring us through the waters of God's holy and just judgment into a new life, a life that is filled with the holy love of God. Jesus entered into those waters of the Jordan River for one reason, for you. He did it to mark himself as the one substitute 
to be the one who would forgive all of your sins. The picture of a substitute is, is given all throughout the Old Testament. God gives his people this picture of a substitute to show them how exactly he was going to save them from their sins. Think of Passover. The substitute in Passover was that perfect lamb without blemish or defect, who, defect whose blood was spilled to save them from the plague of the firstborn son. Think of the great day of atonement. The substitute is that scapegoat that stood in the midst of the people and upon whom was confessed all of the sins of the people and then was led out into the wilderness to signify the removal of sins from their presence. God used these pictures of a substitute to point them forward to the true and better substitute who would wade into the waters of the Jordan River to stand there before the holy perfect God and to be marked for death. When Jesus waded into the waters of the Jordan River, he was marked as your substitute. That marked the beginning of the, the spread of the gospel, the spread of the good news of what Jesus would do for each and every one of you. When Jesus waded into the waters of the Jordan River, he was marked as the Lamb of God who would take away all of your sin. When Jesus waded into the waters of the Jordan River on his baptism, he was marked as the perfect scapegoat upon whom God would place all of your sins and would lead him away into the wilderness of death. When he waded into those waters of the Jordan River, Jesus had no need for baptism. He was perfect. He was sinless. He was God. He had, and though he had no need for that baptism, he did it all for you to mark himself as your substitute, to be the one who would not only be marked for death, but to be the one who was marked to be raised for life and to bring you life and forgiveness that never ends. When we gathered here this morning to celebrate the baptism of Jesus, we did so in a way that seemed so strange, so odd, and even scary to our world. Like we stood there, and as a congregation and as individuals, we confessed our sins. We admitted that we are a people who cannot do anything good. We admitted that we are a people who deserve the punishment of sin. We admitted that God is just in carrying out that punishment. But in that midst of that scary confession, do you know what Mark, the gospel writer, does? He calls us to look up. He calls us to look up and to see your substitute. To look up and see the one who was marked to take away all of your sins. He calls you to look up and see the one who stood in your place before the holy, perfect God and to bear the punishment that your sins deserved. He calls you to see Jesus, who is the perfect substitute, who is not only the bringer of life, but the bringer of God's undeserved love, his arrow-pointing down love for you that transforms hearts and minds and lives and eternities. When Jesus stepped out of, those, out of that, the waters of that Jordan River, do you remember what happened? The heavens were torn open. The Holy Spirit descended like a dove and God the Father's voice boomed from heaven. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And do you recognize that those are also words that are spoken over every one of you? Mark calls you to see those words and to hear those words and to take those words to heart. Because your substitute waded into the waters of the Jordan River that day, your God now looks at you and he no longer sees your past. He no longer sees your sin. He no longer sees where you would be by nature on your very own. Instead, what he sees is your substitute. He sees his son, the son who was pierced for you, who was crushed for you, who died for you, and who rose for you. And so when your God looks at you, he sees your substitute and he says, you are my son, you are my daughter. With you, 
I am well pleased. The whole notion of standing here this morning and confessing our sins and the notion of an all-loving God who would never punish who would never punish anyone for their sins is a notion that most people are happy with. But it's not the reality. And thank God that it's not. And thank God that he actually revealed what the, the true reality is. Because it's a reality that's far greater. Because in this reality, you have someone who confesses their sins. You have a God who actually forgives those sins because of what that substitute, Jesus Christ, your Lord, has done for you. What a beautiful reality that is. What a beautiful and comforting truth that is for our day-to-day lives. And as I, as I contemplate that truth, and as you contemplate that truth this morning, I want you to think of those words that we sung at the very last stanza of that hymn. I want to use that as a prayer to finish this sermon. The hymn writer says, Now rise, faint hearts, be resolute. This man is Christ, your substitute. He was baptized in Jordan's stream, proclaimed your Redeemer, Lord Supreme. God grant it. Amen.